You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jenna Clark Embry, and I'm the literary manager here at Signature Theatre. And I'd like to welcome you all to today's panel on best practices in the American theatre. Today's event is the first in a series in which Signature Theatre is partnering with American Theatre Magazine to present a series of discussions over the coming season in which we're going to examine various topics as they relate to the current state of the industry. So I hope you join us all for the rest of them, the rest of this season. And if you are new to Signature, if this is your first time that you're here, I would like to invite you to come see some of our productions. We are currently on the set of Will Eno's play, Tom Payne, Based on Nothing, featuring Michael C. Hall. And across the lobby in our Linney Theater, on Monday we will begin performances of Lynn Nottage's play, Fabulation, or the Re-Education of Undine. And if you are a regular joiner of our signature events, then I encourage you to subscribe, subscribe to American Theater Magazine and support some really excellent arts journalism. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our wonderful moderator, who will then in turn introduce our wonderful panelists, and we'll get started. So, Deep Tran is currently the senior editor of American Theatre Magazine, where she focuses on issues of representation and access. She is also a producer and co-host of the Token Theatre Friends podcast, which you should all subscribe to. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Playbill, CNN, Hello Giggles, and Salon, among other publications. And in 2015, she was a critic fellow at the National Critics Institute at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Center. Thank you all for coming, and this is where I give the spiel about what American Theatre Magazine is. Uh, American Theatre Magazine has been published has been publishing since 1984. We're the only nationally syndicated magazine about theatre. And we're published by, we're published 10 times a year. And we also run content online every day at americantheater.org. Uh, we're published by Theater Communications Group, the national organization for the non-for-profit theater, of which three pan, three of our panelists are members. So they're members, you should be members. Please come support us if you love the American theater. Uh, Okay, that, uh, with that out of the way, I wanted to give my version of the introduction for each of these panelists because you can read their official bios in the program. I'm not going to repeat that. But the, re- but the reason I asked each of them to do this was for a very particular reason. So first to my right is Bill Rausch, the, the current artistic director of Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and he's going to become the artistic director of the newly created Perriman Center at the World Trade Center. And the reason I asked Bill to come is because in his 10 years, 10 years, 12 12 years at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, he has diversified the acting company and has fostered a new generation of American theater canon, such as Sweat by Lynn Nottage, All the Way by Robert Schenken. But Bill's awesome. I love Bill. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, next to him is Ralph Pena at Mayi Theater Company, one of the biggest Asian American theater companies in the country and one of my personal favorite theater companies in New York City. <laughs> Don't tell the other theater companies. Uh, and most recently, what I, what I love about Mayi is, yes, they're focused on Asian American representation, but they're also focused on intersectionality. And recently, they did this amazing production at, with the public theater and with a disabled theater company called the Apo- Apo- Apothete. 
Yes. It's called Teenage Dick, and it sounds as fun as the, as the title. <laughs> it was. So that is Ralph Pina. Uh, Erica Jensen is a casting director for Calary Casting, and her credit, and she is also on the diversity committee for the Casting Casting Society of America. Her casting credits include A Raisin in the Sun, The Visit, and Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is amazing because all of those actors were beautiful people. <laughs> And uh, finally, we have Jacob Padrone, who actually just got a new job. He is going to be <laughs> the artistic director of the Tony Winning Long Wharf Theater. And he is also the producer of The Soul Project, which was this amazing artist initiative to make to get more Latinx playwrights produced around the country because there's not enough and there should be more. And he and about how many? 12 other people? Oh, sorry. Uh, six, uh, five other artists decided to just come together and say, hey, theaters, you're not producing enough, and here's some awesome playwrights that you, sh you should produce. So we love all of these people. So thank you for coming. Uh, I, I wanted to just open it up to a qu with a question that we, American Theater got on Twitter, which is basically, why are we doing another panel about diversity? <laughs> and in particular, in regards to your work, like, why do you think it's important? Why are we still talking about this? Yes, because it's still a problem. Um, um, we do a lot of talk around it. But the praxis itself is very much divorced from the rhetoric. Um, a lot of theaters will say they're diverse, but if you look at their programs and their, what they put on stage, uh, you'd be challenged to say that they were. Also, diversity can't just be about numbers. And I know we're focused on that because jobs. But it's got to be about agency and how it's framed. Who's talking and who's talking for whom? That's, I think... Uh, missing from the conversation right now we're saying okay let's put uh, people of color on stage but we got to take we have to privilege their points of view and until that happens then we're always going to be doing these diversity panels because we're incrementally saying okay now it's about numbers okay now it's about casting now it's back office but it's about all of that and um and until that happens then i guess i'm not retiring <laughs> mm. I would just add, can you guys hear me? Yes. Uh, I think I would just add that the work of building a more uh, a more inclusive American theater is lifelong work. That that it's going to you know sort of take all of our lifetimes, and that it's not um, you know it's not a one size fits all. It's not just one show or one cast. I think to Ralph's point, you know, you can put people of color on stage, but what are the ways in which we are building the conditions for people of color to be seen and to be celebrated and to be liberated? And I feel like that work is lifelong work. Yeah. Bill, I know you and I have talked about this. When it comes to making a diversity, making diversity like not just a thing that one person does for an organization or one artist does. And so, and we talk a lot about like it has to be, be from the top down. And so where, what is, yes, you can be an artist and come in and say, we need to do this, but what kind of support do you need in order to actually make it happen? You're asking me. Oh, I'm asking you to start, but okay. this entire. Sure. Anyone who has thoughts. No, I, I, it has to be. Um, well, first of all, one of my mentors um, 
taught me diversity is a fact, right? Diversity is a fact of life. Diversity is a fact in the United States um, uh, period. So the issue is inclusion, right? What do we do with the fact of our diversity and how do we create a truly inclusive uh, American theater? And um, it has to be in every uh, aspect of the organization. Um, if it is um, only on stage, uh, but the decision makers, whether it's around the board table or in the administrative offices or who, who's interpreting the play, who, who the creative team is in terms of designers as well as director, dramaturg, um, all of those voices um, have to reflect the organization's commitment to inclusion um, or else uh, there are disconnects that um, can become quite toxic. Like you think, well, you know, that's not the visible part of the work and, it, and, and that's um, a fatal mistake because um, th there's, there's uh, potential toxicity in um, the lack of inclusion wherever it exists. <laughs> uh, also, I think that, you know, to support it, I think theaters and all organizations know there's attendant costs to implementing the program. Um, it means maybe uh, reaching out to different audiences. Um, it might mean picking different plays. It might mean dips in box office returns, but you've got to invest in it. Um, and unless people realize that, that, that these things are, are part of trying to diversify, we're challenged to constantly have having to solve this, pro this rubric, right, uh, with no resources. So the board has to buy in from it, uh, buy into it. And also, this uh, I just want to say, uh, diversity is not just a. It's about putting people in power. So unless that happens, we're this panel will continue. I would also just add that. Um, that uh, I think to Bill's point and, and to pick up on what you're saying, Ralph, is that, uh, you know, I think that an organization also has to do the deep internal work, the reflection of are we actually ready to do the work of building a more inclusive American theater? Are we ready to actually build a more inclusive organizational culture? Because I think sometimes what also happens is that a lot of these theaters here in New York and I think across the country will bring in a really racially diverse cast or bring in leadership that are people of color, but they haven't, again, they haven't created the conditions internally for those people to be successful. That, you know, I, I was really struck by something that one of my colleagues at the public theater once said. She said that, you know, um, that that exclusion and racism may be kind of calcified in the DNA of our companies, of, of, of our theater companies. And I was really struck by that idea that this, how can we actually minimize the calcification? And I, and I think that in order to do that, a theater has to do the deep work of understanding, are we ready? Actually, are we ready to go on the journey? Because again, it's lifelong and it's really hard work. Yeah, and just to add to what you're all saying, um, I think that it's more than just picking a play and then telling the casting director to find people of color to go into this play. That's not what an authentic way of diversifying and empowering people, as you're saying. That's not the way to do it. So, and that's what happens on my end all the time. <laughs> it's like we get a play that's written, written by a, a white person, and um, we're based on their experience, and then we're told to find people because the theater needs to present in a certain kind of way so that they don't get criticized. And that's not, and that that's that is not the way to to do this. 
at, at OSF, um, I'll just say quickly, we have a, a full-time director of equity, um, which um, has in, made an enormous difference. Sharifa Joka is our director of equity, and she is involved in every aspect of our company's work. Um, but I, so I celebrate that. At the same time, it took us like eight years from talking about the fact that we needed a director of equity before we actually uh, dedicated the, the budgetary resources to, to having one. Um, but it's been a big game changer. Yeah. Uh, Erica, you touched on something that I'm fascinated by, which is what... So it's not enough to say, oh, just go find people of color or go find marginalized folks. So what is, so what does enough look like? What does support look like for you? Uh, well, you know, it, it, uh, it, I, I think I'll just be echoing what, what's, what, what Ralph said. Um, uh, it's about, um, it's about the, the board and um, the artistic director and, um, and directors and writers um, making decisions about what's going to be produced, and um, and it has to again, it has to be um, in a genuine uh, way um, <clears throat> that. Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? <laughs> um, uh, we need the support of of a whole of of the whole team, and. Um, and, and everybody has to understand that we can't just, you know, we can't fit like a square peg in a round hole, you know, in order to, in order for appearances. So um, we need everybody to be on board um, uh, in order, you know, to do to do the work. Otherwise, it just feels kind of yucky. <laughs> it just feels really gross. <laughs> well, then, what does going beyond appearances look like? Is it something like? Going, going to communities and 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 bringing in people who are not white to go to or you know able-bodied to go to come to the theater. Like, what does it look like so that it's not tokenizing? Right. I know that one of the things that um, one of the things I'm on the um, the I'm, I'm a member of the Casting Society of America and I'm on the diversity committee there. And one of the things that we're doing is um, we are doing um, a lot of outreach um, to educate. Um, people about our jobs so that we can have more representation on in on our end as well because we recognize that it, as part of the casting society if you walk into a casting society meeting most of the casting directors are are white um, and so it's not just the theaters it's the casting community as well and so and we, so we're recognizing that in order for change to happen we have to think about how we employ people the, the other the employ people uh, you know uh, us. <laughs> um, so, um, so we're taking steps um, to change how we look as well. And that, so, you know, because we make a lot of big decisions, you know, um, we collaborate with the theaters, you know, and so um, uh, our voice is pretty strong. And so we need to have uh, a, a more representation on our end as well. Okay, and since we got into, onto this topic, I'll just go with it, which is like off stage, because a lot of people think, oh, just put just put like a diverse body on stage, and then you solve the problem. But can can we all talk a little bit about like how do we foster like off stage diversity, and why is that important? Uh, I, I, I... Uh, because they're the gatekeepers, essentially. They're the, they're the people that decide who gets invited to the table. And I ha it means putting diverse, diversity 
uh, at the center of the organization, both creative and both uh, structurally. That, that that's what's driving everything. But the, the gatekeepers, for me, have to change. And if these gatekeepers are unable to figure out how to implement diversity, they need to go and, and, and be changed. Uh, otherwise, we're on this perpetual cycle of begging begging to be let in and hoping for concession and magnanimity from organizations and hoping that they that they take some pity on these artists of color and and bring them in that has to change and uh i hope before i die i see that i've been doing this for far too long and and knocking and begging and knocking and begging is truly, truly, uh, it's tiring. It's tiring. Yeah, I think to I think to add to that, I think you know the way in which for people of color we sort of labor for their work to happen. And I would just add to Ralph's point also that you know yes, absolutely, it is about executive leadership. But all of us, all of us in this room, we are all gatekeepers. We all, you know, one of the things that uh, my my dear friend Stephanie Ibarra, who's the new artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage, she often says yes, yes. Uh, she often says you know that we all have levers personal levers that we can push and pull to affect systemic change for a more inclusive American theater. So I, you know, I think sometimes what we do is we point in, in, in the direction of the person sort of across the way and say, it's your problem, or you need to fix that, or you're the artistic director. But again, we are all gatekeepers. We all have levers that we can push and pull to, to create a more inclusive, um, to widen the circle and to create a more inclusive community. Um, and I think, you know, to, to your question, Deep, I think it goes to what Bill is saying is uh, how does the work of equity and inclusion and the dismantling of systemic racism, it has to sort of touch all parts of the organization. It's not just about the work on stage. It really does have to touch all parts in, all parts in order for there to be, I think, meaningful, lasting change. Yeah. And I would even, and I would even add that it goes even beyond um, us. You know, I mean, it goes... It goes t- to education, you know, so many um, artists are, you know, they come from schools, um, and if we're not educating everyone and showing everyone what they can be, that they can, you know, this person of color can be a director, this trans person can do lights, you know, if we're not doing that in schools, then then that makes our jobs even harder, too, like what we do, like, it's, it's everything. It has to start... Um, and I, I find that that's a big obstacle for me is because I, part of like how I find actors is um, I, I attend showcases and, and if and if those programs are not inviting everyone to the table to their programs, then I'm not seeing the the best people. Then I'm not seeing everyone that I need to see, and therefore my options become less. And so that's a, that's a really big thing too. I, education is is a big thing. I would just add uh, to these really smart comments from all three of you um, that, that uh, I think in terms of an individual show, um, the amount of decision-making that a creative team makes, that a director and designers make long before a show goes into rehearsal. I mean, at OSF, it's a little bit like an opera company in terms of how far in advance we're building sets and costumes, you know, months before shows go into rehearsal. So these major decisions 
decisions about what the world is on stage are being made. And if those decision makers don't bring uh, any kind of authentic voice or any kind of cultural expertise or any sensitivity to uh, the, the questions of what is the world of the play, then actors end up having to inhabit a world that they may not believe in or that they may not understand, um, it, it, you know, and, and it becomes very problematic in terms of the work. So I, I think the, the we sometimes don't pay enough attention to gender um, as well as to race um, and, and many other forms of identity um, when it comes to building creative teams. One of the things that I always remember you saying, Bill, when uh, for those who don't know, so I, I owe a lot to this dear man. He gave me my first job out of graduate school, <laughs> uh, and I was the associate producer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So it's I'm also having a moment right now where I I, I, I feel very blessed and my heart's very full that I get to be on on, on stage with you and having this conversation way, with you. Uh, but one of the things I always remember you saying when I started at OSF was that um, by having a really thoughtful. Uh, inclusive uh, uh, design team uh, makes the work richer on stage. And that's something that really has stayed with me, and it's something that I spoke to with great passion when I was going through my long work process for, for that job. Yeah. So, so OSF is a great model, and I wonder if OSF can do it, why can't New York companies do it? It's, it's like it's crazy, right? If OSF can oh. do it all the way in Oregon, why are we It's true. It's true. It's, a, it's, a mar it's like, why? look, they're doing it right there. Why can't we do it here? Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> well, I could, I mean, uh, so yes. Why are we not doing it here? And I think that that was part of the um, kind of larger sort of mission, you know, of the Soul Project. You know, the Soul Project is an initiative to amplify the voices of gifted Latinx playwrights in partnership with leading theaters around the country, specifically the off-Broadway community here. Um, and, you know, that is our stated mission. That's what we say on the website. But I think kind of the larger thing that we're trying to do is to affect systemic change to address the very thing that I think you're saying, Ralph, was how do we actually... Uh, interrogate the culture and the DNA of these companies so that they truly are an artistic home for people of color. Because I think for all, I think this, even this company that we're, you know, this theater that we're sitting in, and I think companies across the city say that they want their stages to reflect the beautiful kaleidoscope of the city of New York. But when we look at the programming, it's homogenous, it's primarily white, it's primarily male. Uh, uh, and so the Soul Project is trying to activate difficult and meaningful conversations with our partner companies to say, how can we, again, how can we widen the circle? How can your theater company really, truly be an artistic home for people of color? I was look. I, I'm, I'm moving to New York next year, so I, I'm not. A, I'm not an expert on New York, but I will say that I feel like I, I, I was lucky enough to have a Ford Foundation fellowship um, some years back, and I did a survey of large budget theaters around the country, the largest budget theaters around the country, and I was shocked by some of the what, what that survey revealed in terms of um, theaters that had no female directors or no directors of color or, you know, just like uh, uh, again and again and again, um, I do feel like there's movement afoot, you know, and, and I'm not saying let's celebrate that the work is done. I agree with you. It's ongoing. It's lifelong. But I do feel like more and more um, uh, institutions, uh, especially larger budget institutions, are being more thoughtful than they have been in the past. 
I feel encouraged by um, <clears throat> some of the projects I'm currently I'm working on right now. Um, two of them are being directed by by black women, and um, and then another project I'm working on is another woman is directing, um, and uh, and um, two of the projects are. Um, uh, two, yeah, two projects are all black cast, and another project is um, uh, probably going to be a woman of color. So, uh, and so, um, now most of those theaters are outside the city, <laughs> but I am encouraged by what's going on um, on, on some on a lot of the things that I'm working on that are outside. So. I'm not as encouraged, uh, <laughs> I, uh, only because uh, we, we, we helped found APAC, which is the Asian American Performance Alliance Coalition, tracking diversity among Broadway and off-Broadway theaters. And the average from 2015 to 2016 has remained constant. 4% for Asians, which goes up to 6% if we have King and I and Miss Saigon, 4% for Latinos, 70% for whites, and 1% for everyone else. That's been constant. So that tells us something. Uh, in spite of everything that you hear, we're, we're getting very adept at talking about diversity. And it's becoming a release valve for our, a lot of theaters, holding panels, holding diversity, whatever. It releases the, you know, suddenly you're woke and you're, you're, you're okay. <laughs> but that's not it. The numbers speak for themselves. And we'll continue tracking it. Um, th this is done, by the way, by volunteer actors who, s who Google every actor's face off-Broadway and see how they self-identify. And they count those one by one. You know why? Because Actors' Equity will not release that data because it would create a storm. Mm -hmm. and, and so we have to do it to hold people accountable. Anyway. A That's that. Amen. And I yeah. would even say just uh, even using the word diversity, right, that that has become such a diluted yeah. term as a, as a kind of catch-all. And I think that what we have to, we have to, again, I'm going to quote Stephanie. She says, we have to stop using the word diversity. We have to start talking about racism and we have to start building anti-racist theaters um, because that really, I think, sits at the heart of, I think, what you're speaking to, Ralph, right? Um, and one of the other things that I would I would just share is um, there is some grassroots organizing that I think is happening to try to educate um, uh, our off-Broadway community and really be in partnership with these artistic leaders. We, uh, with, with some of my dear friends, we have organized, um, we've worked with a company called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond where we actually brought artistic gatekeepers together with artists and members of the press and agents and casting folks to take an undoing racism workshop. We've organized two, but that's another way that we can, again, we can all be gatekeepers and we can all help um, move the field to be more equitable and more inclusive. Um, so just to offer that up, that uh, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. Right. Well, I mean, talk about the People's Institute. Like a lot of the the conversation is around like anti-bias because I a good amount of the problem in my in my estimation is people thinking there's they're just picking the best artist or artists that they know or artists that they know who are good and but that it, it's a very nebulous definition of what good is and it doesn't get into the fact that people tend to congregate around people of, of similar demographics to them. And so, uh, Ralph, Jake, like when you're having these conversations with primarily white institutions, and basically you want to say, just hire more people of color. Why is that so hard? 
and but it's not as easy as that it seems like yeah. Uh, first of all, white institutions no longer want to talk to me. Uh, <laughs> the public theater talks to you. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I like I'm a broken record, but but we do. There's these, this APAC thing is a real mm-hmm. is a real for me a real um, needle mover because the New York Times has picked it up. So it's almost like a shaming mechanism, and the people that were at the bottom of that list. Two years later, at the top of that list, with probably an exception in one theater that just refuses to use people of color. But it has changed. It has really made a difference. And I think that, that that's one way for us to, to talk to, to, uh, to the larger institutions. And for us, it's always an appeal of this is an economic proposition. You have the biggest contracts. You, ha- you pay the most. And so by not, by not Casting these actors, you're depriving them of a livelihood, potential livelihood in New York City. And many of these organizations then tell me, you know, you're so much better at what you do. Why don't you just keep doing what you do and, you know, we'll, we'll do what we do. But, but the, the question, I was told that by a, an artistic director of a large regional theater. And, and I said, but no, you pay, you, you pay, $900 a week and I pay $400 a week. That that makes a huge difference. So so those are some of the things that we always go to the the, the leaders with. Like this is an, this is not just about putting color on stage. This is about giving people a livelihood. I can't you're you're it. You are it. And and hopefully they listen, but not always. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the I just yes uh, to echo what you're saying, Ralph. Um, I always try to uh, activate a meaningful conversation around economic impact, like to actually think about where where the how, where is the money going? Are you putting it in the pockets of people of color? And because that's another way that we can calcify systemic racism in our in our theaters. Um, so absolutely. And, and the way that I try to have these conversations with cultural leaders and artistic directors um, is let's go on a journey together. The work is hard. The work is lifelong. But also the work can be joyful because you can see how it can bring people together um, and you can see how you can change people's lives. Um, so that's how I've tried to approach it as the artistic director of the Soul Project, working with these different off-Broadway companies and, and these different artistic directors. Let's go on a journey together. I'm not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have all the answers. But together, we're going to come up with the answers. Um, and, and it seems that we're, you know, we're chipping away. We've, we've done four shows. We're going to do our fifth um, in New York next fall. Um, and so, you know, onward. To me, I, I also, it, it starts with the work, um, right, in terms of the stories that we're telling. So as an example, OSF is an 83-year-old organization. We had never done in 80, well, whatever it was, 81 years then, um, a Native American authored play. And we did our first uh, Native American authored play two years ago. And uh, last season, the year after we did that first play, we had 10 Native actors in our acting company, and of those ten actors, four of them—I I think it was four—were playing characters that were written to be Native, and the other six were playing characters in in many other pieces. But they were part of the—they um, were part of our company, right? And but had we not done Randy Reinholtz's Off the Rails the year before, um, that. Um, transformation of the acting company would not have occurred. 
so USC released an, a, a diversity study for Hollywood, and one of the things that I found interesting were were like directors of different demographics will non-white directors will bring in like more diverse teams, and so there's. And so in your works, have you found like a correlation between the person at the top and how it, it distributes towards actors and designers? Uh, yes, yes, um, yes. I, I forced that issue. I forced the issue. I said, no, no, no. You, I love that designer, love that designer. But no, you got to get a female designer. You got to get a designer of color. You got to get uh, a disabled designer, a trans designer. You, I force it. Um, otherwise, we all default to our to our favorite teams, you know. Uh, especially established directors, they want to work with their teams. And if you come to us, we say no. You you got to break it up. So so we hand we hold the hands of our artists and guide them through this process. But it's a it's a hard stop. No, you can't. You have to uh, find this person. And for Teenage Dick, we had a disabled lighting designer. Oh. Yeah. So we had three people uh, in that. And again, we went out of our way to look for it. Um, it, it does, these, these things are not low-hanging fruit. You have, to, you have to fight for it. You have to work for it. So if we have to do that, then you know, we're a small little theater company. Then the big guys should be able to do that handily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, one of the uh, uh, part of the invitation to work with the Soul Project um, is I let every artistic director know that the entire the entire design team have to be all artists of color, um, and that has actually I think been really transformational for these companies because they are getting to know artists that they don't they didn't know. Those artists are now finding a foothold in you know these organizations that I hope are becoming artistic homes. Um, and then the other you know just to just to. Uh, share this uh, is I often have conversations with with cultural leaders and um, artistic directors that say you know well I want my playwright to feel empowered or I want my director to feel empowered and so it's who I think this is, goes to what you're saying Ralph and so the default to their trusted collaborators and again that's another way that we don't uh, that we, we have to question everything so that we can build something that's more inclusive you can say to an artist to you know to a playwright or to a director um, this is an animating value. The value of inclusion is important. And so I want you to think about who you surround yourself with. Because again, to go back to what Bill taught me, the work is made richer, right? When you have artists of color on stage um, and a design team, people of color. I'm not the moderator, but I have a question. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, do you find that you, that you suffer at all, like monetarily? Or like, do, you, do your audiences have give feedback that's negative like with the work that you do or what do you <clears throat> um what, what a great question uh well first of all uh no the oregon shakespeare festival um i mean we we, we certainly like any nonprofit, have financial challenges um but there's no correlation between our commitment to diversity and inclusion and financial challenges um i there are to, to not put too fine a point on it i know there are people who can't wait for me to step down because they're sick what they talk about is my political agenda right so audience members who say my agenda is too political um and and uh so that's the way it always gets couched mm -hmm. um but uh 
what's really interesting is new work used to be seen as risky at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and Shakespeare used to be seen as, as a safe bet. And our new plays, um, and new plays written by writers of color, are performing at 95, 100% of capacity, and sometimes a, a Shakespeare title um, may be at 70% of capacity. So it's not, um, th th there's no um, easy um, uh, segregation of the work in terms of diversity or in terms of whose voices are represented. I, I will say this, though. Um, my predecessor, Libby Apple, got a lot of flack for casting classics multiracially, uh, Shakespeare, multiracially. She did King Lear, and the three daughters were played by three women of different races. And there was a lot of pushback. And now our audience would expect that a Shakespeare play would be completely multiracial. They would be very weirded out if it were not multiracial. What I got a lot of flack about early in my tenure was American classics. So when Che Yu directed Our Town with a very multiracial cast, Grover's Corners, New Hampshire wasn't multiracial, you know, or when I I directed The Music Man and Marion the Librarian was, was played by an African-American woman. Jacob and I worked on that together. Huge pushback from, you know, a small segment of the audience, but huge pushback. But I feel like that has shifted in my years there. I don't, I, I don't, I, so I don't know. I, there's many reasons to be discouraged. I agree. But I do feel like I've, I, in my 12 years there, I've seen tremendous progress in movement in terms of that audience for sure. You can't use the audience as an excuse, is basically what you're saying. You can't. And that, whenever I hear an artistic director say, my audience won't let me. I really want to do blah, 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 but my audience won't let me. What the heck is that? Right? That is... That, that is what, what kind of relationship do you have with your audience? If you're, They're like... They're going to punish you? They're going to like spank you? I mean, it's, it's bizarre. Well, and I remember you saying, like, that that we were when we started together, um, that we actually we were. I think we were surprised that the audience actually were more adventurous. That we sort of didn't trust that they were going to go on the journey with us. And so I think that that speaks directly to your point, Bill. Like, they, you know, uh, they their appetite and their aesthetic taste might actually be more. Their palate might be wider than you're giving them credit for. I mean. And I, I know when, we talk, when a lot of people talk about diversity, it's, it's primarily people of color. But you know, we. Uh, but I feel like the conversation now is expanding to diversity across the gender spectrum, diversity in, in terms of abilities. And so, where do you all see like the next? Not like the next stage. We're still in, one, in this stage. But where are we expanding to? Well, I'll just say on gender diversity, um, we had our first uh, openly uh, trans company members uh, in the past year in the acting company, um, and uh, our larger company has uh, uh, trans and non-binary company members as well. And um, so it was actually cisgendered production company members who wanted us to begin to put gender pronouns into our playbill. And I've gotten tremendous, uh, speaking to the audience, um, tremendous f pushback from some audience members about that. Um, it's voluntary. Anybody who wants to self-identify with their gender pronouns um, and, and, and earn the playbill now. So that's just an example of, again, had we not been doing a queer production of Oklahoma um, and had been looking specifically for trans actors and non-binary actors to be in that piece, um, that... 
the visibility of those company members um, accelerated the process in terms of gender equality and um, uh, uh, gender neutrality being part of our culture. Right. Oh, and that production was um, Curly and Lori were both played by women, and um, and. Ann Eller was played by a, a brilliant transgender woman, and uh, Will and Ado Andy were played by two men as men. Yeah. Got, written up, got written up around the country. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Erica? Um, well, I, I think that um, the one of the next steps is to um, uh, what? Well, I'll just say what I would like to see. I would like to see plays. Uh, and somebody else touched on this already that that show um, that you know people of color are 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 not homogenous and that we can we can have different stories and so that's what I want to see you know I want to see plays about you know about black people who go to work <laughs> you know and live their lives <laughs> and um and that w we see different dimensions because white people have been able to be multidimensional forever and people of color have not and so i think that that's the next step that's what i'm seeing as hopefully is the next step uh, uh the last one I, the last one i wanted to ask all of you before you uh before we opened up to the audience was <laughs> Like, what is what advice would you give to individual artists who don't feel like they have power? At oh, no, <laughs> to advocate for these, yeah, to advocate for these issues, yeah. You had an intake of breath that made us that promised great wisdom. I was just with students, I, I was just with students and and young students who are not yet in about to enter this fray. Use and a mic, that, that's Miles. exactly their question. Use so a I, mic. Sorry. Use a mic. I mean I was just with students and they want they wanted to know well how well how can I what am I gonna do? You know, I'm a I'm a Puerto Rican disabled gay person. Uh, how how am I gonna work? Uh, how how is he gonna work? I I I this thing of inclusion and all of that stuff, that's a moving target. So it's not enough to say, oh, I've achieved this. You constantly have to ping yourself against this changing, moving target. Because people that have been marginalized for hi uh, by history are just now finding their voices. Um, the, the gay community now, we're now talking about gender. That's new. That wasn't around 10 years ago. So you have to look and, and, and ask and, 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 and find out and make it your business to find out. Or we're always sort of behind. And, and I don't know how to answer that kid. I don't know. It's like, how, what am I going to do? I, I don't know. I mean, other than I, I'm here, I will listen, and I know people will listen, but you shouldn't give up because tomorrow is, might be better. Mm. I, I want to pick up on something you said earlier about shaming and, and tell a quick story about um, some loving, fierce 
shaming that was effective. Um, uh, I, good public shaming. Um, good public shaming. Um, this is about me, me being shamed um, and it working. Um, there was, uh, uh, of course, uh, in addition to loving American Theater Magazine and American Theater, um, I, I love um, HowlRound. And uh, so I opened a, 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 an essay on HowlRound one day, and it was written by a native uh, dramaturg in my state of Oregon. And uh, Waylon Link was saying it is disgraceful that no major Oregon theater has done any native-authored plays ever. And in particular, I call out the Oregon Shakespeare Festival because they have native uh, artists on their green show stage, the kind of free ancillary performance stage, but never on the main stage has a native-authored play. And... Um, I, of course, I felt appropriately shamed, and I called Waylon Link immediately. I'd never met him, and um, said, you know, please come meet with me, and he came into my office, and he brought a huge stack of plays written by native authors, and um, he said, um, these are all plays you should read, um, but I think the one you especially might be interested in is the one on the top of the pile. It was Off the Rails by Randy Reinholtz, and we produced it the following season, and I, I've already shared that story. So I I do think um, that um, speaking up uh, in terms of lack of representation or in terms of what feels uh, like injustice, what is injustice, is vitally important. It goes back to Jacob's point, we're, we're all gatekeepers. Any advice that Erica, Jacob, you want to give to people? I think I'm just still reflecting on everything Ralph just said <laughs> because it's so true. This idea of, you know, that it's a, a moving time. I'm thinking about this Puerto Rican, this disabled gay Puerto Rican who says, where is tell, there? Tell him to audition at the Oregon Shakespeare right. Festival. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now while you're still there. Yeah. yeah. Or the long wharf. Or lo yes, please, please. Yes. Um, but no, I mean, I think I hunger for, for and, I, and I spoke about this actually with great passion in the search process for Long Wharf, is that I want to be a champion of plays that are in conversation with the world. I want to, and, and I think that that means we have to be so rigorous about um, intersectionality. That's the, that's the word that just keeps coming to mind um, as we think about building a more, um, an American theater that truly reflects the communities that we aim to serve. I don't have good advice. I <laughs> talk to these people. <laughs> That's my advice. You also, I think my advice is you guys have to demand it. You, yeah. You have to ask for it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, theaters respond to the market. You're the market. Yeah. So you ask for it, eventually they'll listen. Yep. Financial incentives. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, I think this is something that everybody says, but, you know, if you, if you, if you make something, if you make it, if you make something on your own, you know, you don't have to wait for somebody to give you an opportunity. I mean, it's good. You want, obviously, you want a good paycheck and you want to work and you want to be recognized, but, but it's also about not waiting around for somebody to say, it's okay, you can work, you're allowed now. You know, I feel like I spent a lot of time in graduate school waiting for somebody to give me permission to be myself, and that was not good. <laughs> you know, and, and I hope that... Um, you know, that, that you don't wait for somebody to give you permission. You know, yeah, just no. make it.
thank you for saying that because that was such a powerful reminder of that. When I arrived in New York uh, to work at the public theater in 2013, I saw so quickly how the Latinx community, I think, wasn't being represented and celebrated in the way that I felt like they should be, that, that our writers weren't being, they weren't in conversation with all the other writers that were being produced. And so that I was like, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to like, I'm going to do something. And I feel like we actually all have, again, we're all gatekeepers. We all have the power to affect change. All right, audience members, who has questions? Okay. <laughs> oh, um, this um, in, in, in the front. Uh, do you want to <laughs> So, as long as America continues to live a lie about the truth of its racist history and the failure of ever being a democracy because of its denial of civic rights to its population and so forth. Uh, the decalcification, which you said, has to be done in the DNA of the population of America so that there is no more audience pushback, that these people will be sensitized and they should demand a truth in their history books and in their classrooms so they're aware of the failure of the United States to live up to its completely false myth. Now, Ralph, I was, you know, I admire Maye. I think it's one of the two best theater companies in New York. But I have a question. I was very alarmed by the implications of what you said. You said box office dip. What is the implication of that? If that's not tremendous racism. Oh. I don't know what the question is. Oh, you, you, you said, you said uh, we should diversify and there may be a box office dip. Right. That means that that is correlated to the audience pushback about paying less attention That's to true, people of color. So exists. that is very alarming for me. That is manifesting the racism. The fear is true, for sure. The fear is true. The fear is true. Theaters are afraid to program works of color because they think audiences will not come. I can speak about Asian American plays. They will not produce Asian American plays because Asian Americans don't go to the theater. That is why there is no Asian American theater in Seattle. That is why there is no Asian American theater in San Francisco. Because they're afraid that, that the Asian community will not come. And, and I say, okay, then be afraid. Know that it might, might dip your uh, your uh, your box office receipts, but 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 that's a but that's a did you gotta you gotta know that there are attendant costs. This doesn't come for free. It's not low hanging fruit. The this inclusion is not low hanging fruit. You said ninety percent of the native. The that's correct, but that's Oregon Shakespeare and his experience. My experience is that Asian American plays are not being done in the country because theaters are afraid audiences will not come. But they do, don't they? Asian American audiences do come. Yes, Eventually. When they, but no, but they do. That, that, that yeah, just said, that's but it. The, they the, do. the argument is that they won't, so yeah. we can't do them. So just saying that's a bad argument. Stop making it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> who else? Oh my God, so many people. Uh, Thank you, oh my, Rush. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it's in my contract. <laughs> 
was fun. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, sorry, uh, sunflower shirt. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have, like, two short questions. Bill, one thing you were saying about uh, the importance of calling things out, the thing that I've, like... Thank you. Seen in the last year and a half of me being out of college is people threatening my career. And before you start, that gets scary, right? They're like, I will end you before you start. Whoa. Um, it, it has happened to me on multiple occasions. And so, like, there is a fear that I consistently work against when I speak out about the things that I'm experiencing. But it's it's something that I know myself and a lot of my peers are fearful of. Because mm -hmm. everybody's like, you know, if you say, like, I did a production and they really mistreated a lot of the non-union actors in it. Mm -hmm. And all the non-union actors were the only minorities in the show. <laughs> it was like me, two other women of color, and the one trans man in the cast. And they weren't paying us equitably. They changed the rehearsal schedule, they added shows. They were just like not great people. And I know that this director has um, gotten other people to not get jobs. And so like the thought of it, the thought of ending a career before you start is a big part of, I think, the fear in call-out culture and in shaming culture when you don't have space yet, when you're making space for yourself. Um, ooh, sorry. No, no apologize. Um, the second question is, we talk a lot about diversity on the stage and in the theaters, but we don't, I don't think we talk about enough in the audience and the way we look at people, like looking at people as people who deserve space in the theater because I think the theater is pretty great, but uh, we don't, we don't do our best. So if you have any insight onto how we can connect with audiences and communities of other backgrounds, I think that'd be great. Thanks. I'm so sorry that you had that experience. But you know that the people who treated you that way were wrong. They were wrong. You were right. You know your value as an artist. And you just got to carry that in your heart. I remember once um, I had a really hard project that I was working on. And uh, uh, s some of the folks that I was working with were quite abusive. And at the end, somebody said in surprise, you t we just kept dumping coal on your head, and you just took the coal, and you just used it to fuel the oven of your creativity. And um, that was a really, that metaphor really hit me, you know? Like, how do we take um, the hardest things that life doles out and use them um, to be strong and to keep moving forward? Easier said than done, and easier for me and my white male privilege to say that, I know. But I just, I'm so sorry you had that experience. And the audience, I will say, um, uh, just a quick comment on audience. I mean, uh, we've moved, our acting company at OSF has gone from 22% to 70% actors of color in my years there. The audience is more diverse than it was, but it's been a fraction of that, a fraction um, and it's, it's, it's really hard in my life. 
the thing that has created the most diverse audiences, the audiences that reflect the larger world is Cornerstone Theatre Company, my first artistic home, and creating work that involves community members and then their relatives and their friends and their families come and experience the work. So for me, in my life experience, community-based work is where I've seen the audiences that really reflect um, the communities that they're based in. That doesn't mean they're the only ones, but that's been my experience. I, I just wanted to just, in this moment, celebrate you and to say thank you for sharing because when you do that in such a public way, it allows all of us as a community to say, we see you. And I feel like for people of color, right, we have to labor, and I feel like we need to have more opportunities where we can say, please see me. Please see me in all my fullness. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, the other thing that I would say is uh, the thing that you're articulating is uh, I think what a lot of like actors and designers, f um, freelance artists, talk about feel like they don't have the agency because so much of what we do is built on relationships. And so that's why you then have to turn to people like us who are in leadership. Like I actually feel a responsibility as an artistic director, as a producer, to call out, call up. Um, when there is injustice. And so I guess I encourage all of you, and certainly you uh, in particular, to find your allies, to find your co-conspirators who, um, who can lead a coalition. Because we have to do more of that too. We have, to do, we have to build coalitions to fight injustice and to build a more just and equitable American theater. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. You, you point them out and I'll go to them. Oh, <laughs> go to, okay. You're the moderator. Oh my goodness. Uh, uh, over here. There's two people over there. Just pick one of them. Oh, no, no, I can do it. There's three people over there. Just pick oh, one my of gosh. them. Here you go. I, I guess I have a, a very a question. I mean, theater is incumbent upon um, money, right? So I, my question is, as you talk about diversity and inclusion, and you talked about it taking a dip in the theater, there's that fear. So... I guess my question for you would be walk me through an average day when you're actually trying to create buy-in with producers that want to produce shows that are going to fill the box seats. They're going to fill those seats and create that economic flow through. Because at the end of the day, um, as much as we want to create social impact, their, their ultimate job is about creating economic flow through for them and it's going to create theater that produces money. Um, we see that in Hollywood shows that, you know, produce that. So, um, and then Bill, you, you spoke about it took eight years for, to create a director of equity, my question would be, why did it take so long and how did you create buy-in to have that um, built into your, um, I guess, your total revenue and, and how did you substantiate that cost? I have three syllables okay. for the lie um, that um, work of color will cause a box office dip. Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? I mean, how can anyone argue that we're created by artists of color? It's, um, and I'll just say about the director of equity, it's, it's one of the great tools of white supremacy is, um, uh, is putting off, you know, we don't have time for that now. But we'll get to that. That's important. But we have the we have things that are urgent now, right? That's a big tool of white supremacist culture, and we just kept thinking we can't afford to prioritize it until we finally got to the point 
of saying, I'll take it on myself. I finally got to the point of saying we, we can't afford to not prioritize it. And, you know, I admit with some shame that it took eight years to get to that point. So it's just a decision. It's just a decision. And it's about your actions and your stated values being aligned. And that's what you have to work for in leadership is what you say and what you do. Are those things aligned or not? And are you willing to listen to people who are calling out when you're out of alignment? <laughs> um, on the topic of uh, the actions and what, like what you say and what you do being in line, are there experiences that any of you have had where a decision you wanted to make or you felt you had to make, like your decision making um, felt less clear cut in terms of your ideals than it does when you're sitting on a panel? Um, and, and what did you do? In that situation, like, is, is that a case where you can find the right allies to expand your point of view? Or, um, yeah, or is there, or are there decisions you made in the past where now you see, oh, I, I wish I could do that differently? Because I feel like as an individual, it's important to be able to see on that, like, decision-to-decision deci basis of, of how we can always keep improving and keep going on that journey. So I don't, I'm just wondering if you have specific examples. <laughs> It's, it's not about never making mistakes. It's about there are too many mistakes yeah. to... Uh... Yeah. Uh, I have one. I mean, I, we did a, a play with this, uh, about disability, I don't know, 2003. And we used able-bodied actors. And at the time, my worry was how was I going to rehearse um, the show? Because it featured five disabled characters in a home and I worried more about the mechanics the expediency the cost than I did about actually reaching out to the disabled community and figuring that out and and it the the oddly enough um, the times loved the show but they said I wonder what it would have been had they actually used disabled actors and that was just not even I couldn't I, I didn't I did, couldn't wrap my mind around it. Uh, of course, today, I mean, that's just not, I got educated. But that was a bad move. Um, it was a bad move, so, yeah. Th that actually sparked one for me. Um, we started hiring uh, a, a deaf actor in our company, acting company, in 2009, um, the brilliant Howie Siegel. And, um, but it wasn't until 2018 when we uh, had Moni Colt, another uh, brilliant deaf actor in our company, that we finally hired deaf understudy for Monique. So for, for all those years... Hearing actors um, were understudying Howie, and there was always the question of, are they going to use ASL or not? And you know, now I look at that. I mean, I, I'm horrified. But we justified we can't afford to hire a deaf understudy on top of um, uh, the deaf actor, which is absurd, obscene. But it took till last year to, to finally fix that. Um, hey, hi. Um, so I uh, 
have interned or done fellowships at many theaters around New York. Um, and often the case on the literary side, I'm like the only person of color. I'm sure you, a lot of you know what that feeling is like. Um, I wanted to know what is the conversation you have with the literary departments that you have? Because, um, with the conversation about the Native American uh, playwright um, and the play being on, on top, I imagine that um, I see around New York that there's a lot of uh, what I call the obligatory white male playwright spot that goes on every uh, season. But I feel like we have to kind of do like a battle royale for people of color and people who are trans and people who are handicapped, uh, handicapped to get a spot. So what is your, what are the conversations that you have every season with your literary departments? Because it's not just a casting issue. It's literally, you're, uh, you're writing a lot, of, you see a lot of people reading these plays and they're justifying that this play written by a person of color has less merit by, um, than a person who is a white and celebrated playwright. It's such a. It's. I'm. I'm really grateful for your question because I think it's something that I'm going to have to really wrestle with as I head into uh, an institutional leadership position of of running a, a large company. Um, and so, uh, but but two things that I, I I had my first season planning meeting um, a couple days ago. Um, and though I, my my first season actually won't be until uh, 2021, um, the company's planning 1920. Um, and so I'm just you know I'm sort of a sounding board too. The literary office, um, and I, I, what I encouraged them to do was to think about two central questions relative to the season selection process. A, is it is it a play? Is it a story that reflects our community? And B, is it a play and a story that is in conversation with the world? And I feel like if we can if we can circle around those two questions, then I think the issue of how we define excellence and how and that we don't fall into the traps of those slots. Uh, my hope is that we will then, from season to season at Longworth, we will have a brilliant kaleidoscopic. And I really took that from OSF. This idea of kaleidoscope is so important as we think about a more inclusive, um, a more inclusive theater. So that's for me. Did I answer that? I, I hope I, uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of, sort of. I, I, I will say at OSF, our uh, director of literary development and dramaturgy is a woman named Amritha Ramanan, and she is um, just a fierce uh, activist um, when it comes to writers of color and advocating for them. So um, the, actually what we're wrestling with now is we, we, we have these crazy-ass long slots at OSF, um, what, what used to be called the long-running comedy slot, and it runs 120 times. So there's really no nonprofit equivalent to it. It's about um, it, it, it's really the only equivalent is commercial theater, and um, so with those 120 performances, we've been interrogating, and Amrith has really been pushing me on the assumptions we've made that familiar titles have to go into that slot, and familiar title almost in, not always, but almost inevitably means white. And so we have been um, really interrogating that and really trying to pull that apart in a great way. Well, thank you all. This has been very interesting. Um, one of the You've been talking a lot about equity and diversity, and yet there's been very little discussion about women. Um, and that's, in fact, hardly been mentioned. Do you all feel that there's now equity 
gender equity in theater? Because we've just gone through, obviously, a period of the Me Too movement, and, and you know, there has not been inclusion of women in many ways, and many artistic directors have been unseated for reasons uh, related to treating women badly, et cetera. So I'm wondering, how does that factor into equity, diversity, and inclusion at this point? Uh, for us, we have gender parity for all of our seasons. So that's been in place for a while. Sometimes we'll do all playwrights and directors, uh, those two, and then the casting, obviously. But that's always sort of been um, built into the to the way we look at things. But what lead? I mean, our leader is still about Asian American faces, and but that uh, under that rubric, there are women, disabled, differently abled people. So. Yeah, we didn't talk about it, but for me anyway, that's part of the, that's always part of the, of the, of the formula. It's it's a given. We have to have gender parity. I don't I don't work for a theater company. I'm an independent casting director. My office is independent, so we're not attached to any one theater company. Um, but I can tell you what I'm seeing. Um, and as I mentioned before, the, the 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 most recent projects I've been working on have been mostly teams led by women. So we've had like, so I have like a, a woman playwright uh, attached with a, a, a woman director. Um, and, um, and I'm having, and, and that's happening quite a bit, um, which is, a, you know, we're not done. <laughs> Obviously, there's still a ton of work to do. But um, uh, I'm working on a television show right now with a, um, a woman showrunner. Um, and most of the, uh, I would say that most of the team is um, female-led as well. Um, and, um, and all the directors they, they've hired for the season are women. So, um, so there's definitely the, um, the push for women in, in leadership positions. Um, you know, the creator of the show is a woman, like I said, and um, all the, the directors this season have been women. Um, so, uh, and I know that um, I, uh, my office cast for Long Wharf, and um, this season, in fact, I think, I think just about all of the directors are, almost all of the directors this season are women. So um, I'm not, this is not to say that the playwrights are, but um, the, the season that they've built um, is uh, mostly women and at least two women of color who are directing this season. So I'm finding some encouragement in that. Um, gender uh, equity is a huge issue for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival as a classical theater and the just obscene imba gender imbalance in the history of world theater uh, and a commitment to the classical canon. It's, it's a nightmare. I was so proud of the first season that I created back in 2008. I was, you know, I thought, oh, this is a great season. It's really balanced. And I look back now, there was one play out of 11 written by a woman and I kind of shudder when I think about that um, uh, you know and but we've still never with four plays by Shakespeare every year we've still never achieved not yet achieved a season where the majority of plays in the season are written by women so as far as we've come and that's just talking about women I think we've made intense progress in terms of directors um, but as a problem in the American theater um, gender inequity is huge and, and you're right it is striking that we haven't talked about it more 
I think we're at time. I don't accept that. <laughs> Bill says we can have one more question. Who wants to take us home? All right. Okay. Uh, uh, so over on the side, uh, Michelle. Um, I have a question about. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about, you mentioned financial incentives, um, and I just had a question about, you You have been talking about on-stage diversity and inclusion, um, but we haven't really talked about administrative diversity and inclusion, particularly internships. Um, I'd just like to point out that almost no internships in New York are paid, or paid at a minimum or living wage, um, and mostly they're stipends. So I just, I want to know, do you guys see any solutions? Um, like, who do we speak to? Like, I'm, like, who do, like, who do we speak to? Like, I'm so tired. Yeah, that's my question. Sorry. <laughs> Good solution to that. We don't hire interns, so I don't uh, we see. do. We do hire interns, and right now they are paid minimum wage. Uh, but that's a commitment we made for everyone. So every hour worked at the theater is paid at minimum wage, including readings, including all of that stuff. So, but interns, obviously, uh, we just—I mean, we're a small company, so there's like seven of us. Um, so I don't hire a, a lot of interns. We'll hire one or two, but those are paid. Um, but they should be paid more. Mm-hmm. It's 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 yeah. It's so many many of us are in, all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Um, we're always all of us are li- living paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. and and I totally relate. But uh, so my job is to look for money all the time, <laughs> so that I can give it to. The people that work at the office and the artists that and the designers. So, mm-hmm. so I don't have a. Uh, it's raced every year, and what we're trying to do is stay ahead of minimum wage. It's going to go up again next year, but it's still not enough to live in New York City. It's not, and and we've asked the city for help. I think that this this has that the city has to sort of step up to the plate, knowing that artists, all these people, are feeding this industry that generates billions and billions of dollars. And I think they need to be able to um, create um, some kind of fund for theaters to buy into. That by buying into, you commit to paying people a living wage. Um, we've been trying to put that in front of the council. Um, maybe that bi- now that Bill is moving into the city, <laughs> we'll have a little bit more weight. The public theater is part of this, Atlantic, all. Um, so we're trying to do that. And there's a recognition that obviously a lot of theater is made on the backs of interns, which is not right. Mm-hmm. We'd rather give you all money than Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for naming it and saying it out loud. Yeah. Yes. That, that, that's a step. Are we at time? We're. we're- we're heading out on time, yeah. Uh, I mean, do people still want to stay here and talk? Or you, or well, I was... An answer for your Puerto Rican gay. Yeah, go ahead. Talk to me about what project you want to put together, bring together, and I'll see if I can produce. Oh, oh, oh. oh. And what is your name, sir? Eric Krebs. Awesome. Uh, you make it up, and I'll try to produce it, if it seems... You're gonna get an email. And the other, <laughs> <laughs> all right. And the other 
is, it is something called Center for Political Accountability, CPA. Look it up. It's a shaming index for political contributions by 500, uh, Fortune 500. It's been extremely effective in having the companies come to this not-for-profit organization and say, what can we do to raise our score? Mm. It comes out every year, Center for Political Accountability.org, CPA.org. All right. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to be over here. I want to thank the panelists really quickly and our wonderful moderator, Deep. We're going to let them set up for our evening show. Um, so if we want to all head out into the lobby and continue this conversation, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you.